right, time to start tonight. Start a study of premillennialism. Premillennialism last Sunday morning. I'll continue tonight and uh, next Sunday morning. Tonight we're going to focus primarily on Revelation 20. Grace Hill read his words last Sunday and was volunteered to have all the answers tonight. So, for some reason, he was sitting up front Sunday morning. Tonight, whatever reason, he's on the back wall hiding. He I can't say. Marilyn, I don't know what that says, but uh, he's back there hiding. I sat behind Ronald for a reason. All right. Uh, just a 60-second review. We looked last week. At, we took a look at the theory, what it was, and what the implications are. That's primarily what we looked at uh, last week. Here's the example of one definition that I, that I used last week. Summarized this uh, pictorial right here. Basically, Christ came. Uh, the Jews rejected him as the Messiah of the Old Testament because he was rejected unexpectedly. Uh, God changed his plan. Instead of the kingdom being started, the church was began at that period of time. So we're now in the church age. There will come a time when Christ will return. Some look at two returns. The first return uh, being when the rapture takes place. That's when all of the saved are going to be raised up. And then the, some say the second return later, but there will be a seven-year tribulation period during which the worship, although altered, will be uh, reinstated. The temple will rebuilt. The physical temple in Jerusalem. The conflict for three and a half years. Uh, then they see Armageddon, which is a worldwide conflict, an actual world war, a physical world war, uh, with the allies of Israel and Israel against all the other nations of the world. Israel, of course, is going to be uh, successful in that war. Then began the thousand year reign of Christ on earth on a physical throne. The throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for literal 1,000 years. After that period of time will be judgment and eternity. So we cover that in more detail, more time. We simply pointed out a lot of commonly accepted. Certain Seventh-day Adventists, the Witnesses, Southern Baptists, both religious people, spend some time talking about the apostasy within the Lord's Church. Getting in Kentucky, spreading to Southern Indiana, Missouri, during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, still there. There are still people today who hold these views, calling themselves Church of Christ. So it's not something that has gone away. Look, a lot of implications. I'm just going to, you can read these. We talked about these Sunday morning. But they're very serious implications. As I studied this, I just really became the basis for your homework for next Sunday. Studied a lot of thoughts. Some of you presented some good thoughts and passages. Really address many of these implications. If this theory is true, here are some things that are necessarily implied. And so a lot of Bible passages began going through your mind, I'm sure, Sunday morning. Well, that's true. Here's what the Bible says. So we see a lot of conflicts. So we looked at the implications on Sunday morning. Bring us to where we're at tonight. Let's focus tonight on Revelation chapter 20. Thought a lot about how, how you cover Revelation 20 in a meaningful way. And I decided to approach it in a way that if, if I were confronted with a neighbor... And, talk, and they were premillennial. They took me to Revelation chapter 20. They said, well, here's what it said. It would be a thousand-year reign. How would I answer that question? And the more I thought about that, it became apparent to me that the way I would think I would answer that question context. Literally, what they do, they, they take a, a phrase, not even a whole chapter, they take a phrase out of context. I think it's only when you lead somebody to understand what the book is about and lead them to Revelation 20, 
they have any hope of really understanding what Revelation 20 is all about. We, through our study, understand how important context is. Look, they statement out of context, even in our daily conversations, you can make somebody say practically anything. Folks called politicians are good at that, right? They make somebody say something they didn't really say because they take something out of context. Uh, so what I want to do tonight, I want to start and take just a few minutes looking at what the book of Revelation says, and I'm going to lead us up to Revelation chapter 20. Now, there are a number of people in this class that studied that with us here about a year, year and a half ago, several of you in that class, but I don't think you can ever go back and review this too often, at least I can. It's always a benefit. So that's the approach we're going to take this evening, and I trust it will be profitable for us. When we look at Revelation 20, is that is the primary proof text. They have others we're going to look at, but for the most part, that's what they look at. So as we look at the, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1 begins, you recall, with the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, signified to him as book opens, means it's a book of signs and symbols. You have to keep that in our minds as you look at what is said in Revelation chapter 20. Book that is to a great, great extent written in signs and symbols. Book opened with Christ being revealed to the top of John as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who had died and yet lives forevermore. Go to chapters 2 and 3, you're introduced to the, to the immediate audience. I use the word immediate, the book of Revelation is for us yet today. Yet the immediate office, audience will identify it as the seven churches of Asia. There in chapters 2 and 3. Then it was given, I think, primarily words of encouragement. Though in this present age of conflict, they would be victorious in Christ Jesus. For also in that your familiar list of warnings that are issued to them, this was given to John and seated on the Isle of Patmos. Letter then continues with God being introduced in the beginning of the book on his throne. A very key point as we look at Revelation, because it says that God is in control. What better assurance to, to give the, the recipients of this letter in the very beginning than the assurance is God's in control. They were living in a period of time when the mission, or Nero, may have been in control, and was in control of their daily lives, holding the power of life and death very literally. Here's the assurance in the beginning that God is on his throne. God is omnipotent. He controls all things. Followed by the presentation of Christ in chapter 5 as the worthy lamb, worthy to go forward and take the book out of the hand of the strong angel and reveal all the contents of God's plan for mankind. So we see him as the worthy lamb, the lion of Judah, chapter 5. So there we... We saw Christ introduced in chapter 1, reintroduced in a different light in chapter 5, as this worthy lamb. Where lamb then becomes significant as you continue uh, through the book. Then you see the seven seals begin to open. Book Revelation, you get the seals, the trumpets, bowls of wrath, not independent, or they're very much related. That's the way to look at this, I believe, is that the seals reveal what's going to happen. Trumpets then sound a warning. If I told you, here's what I reveal to you, the seven trumpets then sound the warnings of what is about to happen. Seven bowls of wrath simply execute what was revealed 
and that about which they receive the warning. So I don't think you're looking at three different pageantries taking place in the book of Revelation. You're looking at one. Deals reveal, the trumpets warn, the bowls of wrath execute God's judgment. Seven seals are open. They primarily reveal victory for the Lamb, introduced in chapter 5, and for God's faithful servants. primary message of the book is that of victory. Better in that message must be the, the defeat of their enemies. You go to war, you cannot be victorious yourself unless your enemies are destroyed and overcome. Certainly see it's a book of victory for the faithful, but in that is judgment upon the enemies of the Lamb and God's faithful. We're looking for the, in the book a judgment for Satan and his allies. Followed by the seven trumpets that warn of the impending judgments of God upon the enemies of the land, Lamb and God's faithful servants. We have a period of the book then that expressly states that these are going to be ignored and even embedded in some of these chapters. When was introduced, uh, they are ignored by those who are unregenerate, those who are wicked. By sound warnings, they're ignored. It comes as no surprise to a Bible student that the minor prophets, major prophets, written to the people of Israel, uh, were they received there by Israel for the most part? No, they were rejected. So if the Bible students, it's not a surprise that these warnings of God, a call to repentance, were also rejected. Now the, the battlefield has been drawn. And you see in chapter, you come to chapter 12, here's the battlefield. And again, you find not new characters, but you see characters introduced again in a different light in chapter 12. Now you see the dragon, who is Satan, Abaddon, the Apollyon, all descriptions of Satan used in the book of Revelation. It's a warfare between dragon and the man-child. And as you look at chapter 12, the man-child is, is the Christ. So here is this, this battle between Christ and Satan. Dragon is Satan, the Abaddon. You're introduced, especially as you come to chapter 13, very clearly to these beasts. Uh, the first beast is mentioned. This is the Roman emperor and the persecuting emperors during the first century. The second beast is also presented in chapter 13 as being that arm of the Roman government that carries out the wishes of the first beast. Chapter 13 is very key as you come to the latter part of chapter 13 because some of that language is used in chapter 20. Uh, when you talk about who is it's going to reign a thousand years. Well, for one part, it's those who did not bow down and worship the beast, those who refused to receive the mark of the beast in chapter 13. Chapter 13 begins is very key in helping us understand what chapter 20 is all about. This conflict is, is clearly defined here in chapter 12, and these are some key facts right here about the first beast and the second beast. We've had the seal revealed, we've had the trumpets sound a warning, now God follows through. God does, does not want to give idle threats. So now this pageantry continues across the stage. We now see the bowls of wrath being poured out upon the enemies of the land and God's faithful servants. Now as the book continues, you come into chapter 16 and 17, you see the fall of Rome and the great Babylon. The same language is used here that was used in Babylon of old. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
characterize uh, the nation, the city of Rome. Now, those that we, we said in the very beginning is a book of encouragement, right? But Rome, the city of Rome, personified all that was oppressing them. So here is the, the judgment of God upon Rome in these chapters, provide the hope and assurance of victory for God's faithful servants. They're in control now, but that's going to change. God is bringing them into judgment. And so we see this as a first judgment. Victory over Satan and his allies, immediate allies, being the first beast and second priest, beast, uh, culminates then with a notice of their eternal destruction of lake of fire. Now it's not taking place at that moment in time. Notice that in chapter 1, heaven was opened up, the apostle John was allowed to look into the future. Because Christ as the only lamb was able to take that book, was able to break the seal and reveal all the contents of what God's plan was. John is simply seeing all that is going to take place. It does not mean that it happened at that moment in time. That's sort of a quick summary of the book of Revelation, but very key to our understanding. Now let's back up a little bit and look at some, some key passages that we really have to look at a little more closely for understanding Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we, I mentioned, it's not on the chart, but Revelation 13. I mentioned that because it, it identifies the first and second beast as those who oppressed God's people. Those who tried to force God's people to worship the beast. Chapter 13, it says, and those who considered not were put to death. So it tells you how oppressive it was during this period of time. But the sixth bowl of wrath is poured out upon a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet, which is the second beast. In this book, these two are interchangeable, the false prophet and the beast. Again, it's that part of the Roman government, seated in the city of Pergamum. That was the seat, we learned back in Revelation chapter 2, uh, that was the enforcement of the emperor worship. Uh, we noted before in previous studies, much of this you see in secular history. We look at the Bible because this record is 100% accurate. Many of the things that you read certainly can be uh, fortified by a study of secular history, of what took place during this period of time. So what we're seeing here, dragon is Satan, the great deceiver, the first beast of Roman emperor, we saw before, and the first beating emperor, the second beast is a Roman concilia arm that was responsible for Christians bowing the knee to Caesar as opposed to maintaining allegiance and faithfulness to Christ. Now the beast and false prophets were oppressed the saints in the first century. Again, we're leading up Revelation chapter 20. You to understand when you, come to, when you come to chapter 20, what's taking place thus far? Who were the warnings for? What's the book all about? That's why these passages are so key in our understanding and explaining somebody what chapter 20 is all about. So in our study, I really think our challenge in dealing with, with, with premillennial doctrine in chapter 20 really is backing up and understanding this book, what the message is all about, because then we can address contextually what happened in chapter 20. Chapter 16 certainly is very key in our understanding. Chapter 16, it talks about place of Armageddon, or spelled H-R, simply denoting a hill it was a hill of Megiddo. Most would translate this Armageddon instead of Armageddon. Same place. Now this is introduced here in Revelation chapter 16. I notice it's introduced as the sixth bowl of wrath is poured out upon the dragon of beast and the false prophet. That's the judgment. 
so that's key because as the premillennialists look at Armageddon, they've got it much later in time. They believe that we are now premillennial period, right? It hasn't happened yet. They believe the Armageddon is that something has yet to come. Must lead them to understanding that when this sixth bowl of wrath was poured out, this where Armageddon is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. Not associated with the events, even in, in uh, chapter 20, that we'll get to in just a little bit, when Satan is finally judged by God and destroyed eternally. It's not even in chapter 20. All right. uh, without going into a lot of detail here, from a historic standpoint, certainly a great battle site. But when the book opens, it says that these things were signified to John, right? It's a book of symbols. So how does God use this battlefield in Revelation? Physical place, right? A physical place of geographic uh, importance. Something that is just a symbol. This is a place where a battle, many great battles were fought. So that was much of the imagery of the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of Ezekiel 38 and 39 later this evening. Much of the imagery is drawn from the Old Testament scriptures. Here is a, just a simple example of that. Here is a great battlefield. A battlefield has been drawn and identified as Armageddon. Bombing place where a spiritual battle is going to take place, not a physical battle. This is the symbol that's used, but it's key to recognize that it's associated with the peace and the false prophet. Now, if in your mind you're saying, well, how do I show somebody that this is talking about the days of Roman Empire? <coughs> may not get to that tonight, but certainly will Sunday morning. I think it's pretty easy to take just a handful of scriptures. I think you can, without great difficulty, show somebody who is somewhat open-minded, uh, lead them to understanding that certainly these events are taking place during the days of the Roman Empire. So we're doing that at the very latest Sunday morning. Well, again, chapter 16 is very key. Because this is where Armageddon is mentioned by such a key passage. Another key passage is chapter 19. Now, we all understand Bible readings. There were no chapter divisions, right? So, chapter 19 flows right into chapter 20. Chapter 19, the first ten verses, simply a passage of victory. A victory for what? That's a continuation of the celebration that the city of Rome has fallen. Chapter 17 and 18, Rome has fallen. And so, we come to chapter 19, here is a, the hallelujahs, the victory of this judgment that God has brought upon Rome. Remind ourselves again, what is your, who was the immediate audience? Seven churches. What was happening? They were being oppressed. Who was Antipas? Do you remember? <coughs> faithful martyr. A faithful martyr. How many faithful martyrs in Revelation do we know by name? By name. How many names do we know of people in Revelation who were martyred? One. One, alright? Remember Antipas. My uh, watchword a year ago when we studied the book. If you remember nothing else, remember Antipas. Only martyr mentioned my name. So God gave that to us. Now, Revelation 19 told us that's a victory, and it's a victory that God's judgment came. Now, what this victory is all about, Luke chapter 19, is that the blood of the servants has been avenged. Go back to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. There you have the martyred saints, those who were put to death. Uh, somebody recently read out a box of Book of Mark. I don't know who that was. Had some good references out of that book. 
It's an excellent book because it's, it's, it's accepted as being historically accurate. But it noted many of the people who were put to death during this period of time. So here are some of the martyrs, and their question is, how long until what happens in Revelation 6? What's the question, Greg? How long until our blood is avenged, until God brings his judgment? They were ready to be avenged, much like we would be. God, why don't you judge? Why do you let this go on? Much like it reflects back to Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophet Habakkuk said, God, I, I don't understand. Why are you letting this continue as it is? Look at the unfaithfulness of God's people. Uh, so even here, they're saying, well, how long do we have to wait until our blood is avenged? The answer was what? While the more of your brother, brothers suffer the same ill. That is, more Christians are going to be put to death. That's the response given back to Revelation chapter 6. Again, a very key passage here. What's the book about? It's assurance. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, many are being put to death. It's coming a time you're going to be avenged. Uh, a key statement here, I am a fellow servant with thee and with thy brother that hold the testimony of Christ. Those of you in my classroom, we emphasize this point. Seen repeatedly in a book associated with those who were faithful martyrs. It's important because we see this in Revelation chapter 20. So another, another little tidbit that we sort of got to tie together to lead us to a proper understanding of Revelation chapter 20 as we help others understand what that chapter is all about. Now the remaining part of chapter 19, judge with a beast and a false prophet. I and they're called the beast and the false prophet. It reminded the, the false prophet the same as the second beast back in, in chapter 13. Now, remember that in chapter 16, the sixth bowl of wrath was pulled out, and the, the, those affected included the beast and the false prophet. Well, this section of chapter 19, Jesus is presented as King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes forward to judge and make war. Now, this is very key right here. When Christ returns, as we understand what the Scriptures teach, is He coming to make war? According to Acts 17, what's He coming to do, Joe? Pass judgment. There's another key word in understanding what chapter 20 is all about. In chapter 19, He comes to judge and to make war. Not the end of time. Chapter 19 is not talking about the final judgment. He's not coming to make war then. He's coming to make war now against the enemies of the saints and against the enemies of the Lamb. Beast rises up in a futile attempt to battle Christ. As is presented here in chapter 19, then the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Here is the judgment. What you see thus far, we see that Rome is judged by God. Now the beast and the false prophet are judged. Thrown into the lake of fire. Now we come to chapter 20. That understanding. Revelation 20 is a proof text for premillennialism. Now, the first thing you notice that here are some key things that are not found in Revelation 20. These are not in this chapter. Second coming, the bodily resurrection, reign of Christ on earth, the literal throne of David, Jerusalem of Palestine, the burden of the Jews. All implications, and if we put more on the list, these are some key things that are not mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, which is the proof text for the doctrine. Another key point is we've got to. Understand literal versus figurative. We've introduced the study tonight in Revelation chapter 1. These things were signified to John. It's a book of symbols and signs. So it is a figurative book. A premillennial say yes, it's figurative. It's a figurative key, a figurative abyss, a figurative chain, a figurative dragon, 
And yet when they come down to a thousand years, what do they say? A literal thousand years. So there's a gross inconsistency. And they do damage this text with that inconsistency. So there's another very, very key point. Basic tenets are not in Revelation 20. Only one little piece of this they pull out and say it's a literal 1,000 years. The angel of the keys, the abyss, the chain, the dragon, they say all that is figurative. See an inconsistency here. That was the message of Revelation chapter 20. Here's how I summarize it. Ultimate assurance of that God's faithful servants will be victorious. That the enemies of the Lamb will be judged and destroyed. The ultimate answer to the question back in Revelation chapter 6. How long will you avenge our blood? Revelation 20 provides the, the answer. There is going to be the ultimate. So the judgment of Rome in chapter 17 and 18. The judgment of the beast and false prophet in chapter 19. But yet that's not done, right? Still one left. Now the greatest one is left, right? I'm a fan of old westerns. And you watch old westerns. The good guy, he can take care of 20 bad guys. But as long as the leader's there, what happens, Harold? Bad guys keep coming, right? Because you got the same leader. So, as long as he's in the way, it still exists, the danger's still there. So, chapter 20, reserved for chapter 20, is the assurance of the judgment, the final, ultimate, and eternal judgment of the dragons who has plagued God's people throughout this book. And that is, I think, the message of Revelation chapter 20. Been reserved, the judgment of Satan only is reserved for chapter 20. Other judgments have already taken place. Here you come into chapter 20, First three verses find that Satan is bound for a thousand years. Does it say that Satan is helpless, Scott? It says he's bound, right? It says he's bound or his power is limited. Uh, so many verses come to mind. Hebrews chapter 2. Till the, the coming of Christ, Satan held with his power what? The fear of, fear, of fear of death. Right? Is that true today, Eric? No, Christ overcame that through his death. Now, the power of Satan uh, was certainly uh, negated when Christ was raised from the tomb on the third day. So, Satan is, is bound, but he's not, he's not powerless. 1 Peter 5, chapter 8 tells us what? We're in line, walk about Satan and right? He's still very much alive and active. We're warned about Satan. Doesn't mean he's not out there, he's not active. But it says he's bound, his control is limited. The riders of old have used a Illustration many, many, many times, a dog on a chain, right? Are you close enough? The dog's going to what? The dog's going to bite you. But whose decision is that? That's mine. The proverb says a fool is likened to a man that takes a mad dog by the jaws, right? Well, if I do that, I'm a fool. I've made that decision. Here we find Satan is bound. He can't overcome uh, the power of Christ. He can't overcome the victory that we can have in Christ Jesus. We can relinquish that. We can give him that power. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 4, when he was tempted, he could have given the devil power, right? What would he have had to have done? Turn the stones. Turn the stones to bread. Jump off the pinnacle temple. Say, yeah, I'll take all these kingdoms. He could have relinquished his power, but did not. We say. So here we find that the allies of this present conflict are destroyed. Uh, That's the beast and the false prophet. Destroyed. Number 1,000, without, we don't have a lot of time to talk about numbers. Number 10, it talks in the uh, scriptures, the revelation notwithstanding, a complete period of time. Maybe indefinite, but there's a full period or complete period of time. 
If not known to man, certainly known to God. Here is a period of time. So, in keeping with the symbology of the Old Testament new, and all the numbers, not a little number, it says back in Psalms that God has a cattle on how many hills? A thousand hills. What about the, in the world, are there more than a thousand hills, you think? What about the cattle on the other hills? Does God not own them? It's a symbol, alright? So we understand that very easily, the passage like that. So we've got to use those verses to help people understand the use of numbers in the Old Testament and New, especially symbolically. Now he cast in the abyss. Some think the abyss of Luke chapter 8, 31. When, uh, why did the swine not want to be cast out? They want to go back in the abyss, right? He had a fear of that abyss. And so the evil spirits in the swine didn't want to be cast out and go through the abyss. Some think the same abyss. Again, now, it's, it's important to remember, he's not, being in, he's not in the abyss as punishment. Punishment yet to come. That's at the end of the chapter. Or the middle part of the chapter, verse 10. But it's a constraint. He's in the abyss as a constraint. Now, the end of the 1,000-year period, I believe, coincides with this ultimate destruction of Satan. Don't believe you're talking about several different 1,000-year periods that are different in this chapter. Reasonable believe it's the same 1,000-year period. Right? So bear that in mind. Here are the first three verses. The first is 4 through 6. Subject is a reign of these martyr saints and those who have not worshipped the beast. Back to Revelation chapter 13. That's why that verse is so important. Got to lead a student from Revelation 13 now back to Revelation 20. Well, who's this talking about? Not somebody way, way in the future talking about those saints of the first century. That's the application we've got to see in Revelation chapter 20. Talks about thrones. Here simply just designating honor. Now we see that judgment is rendered. It says that these saints have judgment. Are saints ever given judgment in this sense? In this sense. I think here, this is the judgment they have in their hand. Is that judgment finally handed them by God, rendered on their behalf? Here's the answer, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. How long will master holy and true does thou not judge and avenge our blood? This is the judgment they now have in their hands, as we see in this chapter. Now here they reign with Christ during a thousand years. There's our proof text. Reign with Christ for a thousand years. Talk to Primalinda, well, who is this? Who reigns? Well, they do. Well, who's they? You ever had those conversations? Well, they said it, right? It's that same very nebulous they reign. Well, to lead a premillennialist to understanding Revelation 20 and premillennialism, you've got to get down to bring the answer. But who is this? Where's the answer at? Book yourself. Answers to Revelation chapter 20 are in the book of Revelation. And that ought not to surprise us. It's in the text itself. We don't have to go anywhere else. I haven't picked up my New Testament and gone to any other New Testament passage tonight. I haven't gone back to the Old Testament except for a couple of references of symbology. They end the book of Revelation and lead somebody to an understanding of Revelation chapter 20 and you can deal with premillennialism with Revelation. Then we notice here it's the same period of the same thousand year period no reason to believe. Different period of time. We do notice this a triumph is often noticed as a resurrection. Best example, Ezekiel 37, verse 1 through 14, the valley of dry bones. Who is that talking about? Talking about Israel, right? Here's Israel being restored. It's one of the restoration passages back in the book of Ezekiel. Well, this is their triumph and victory is spoken of as a resurrection. I believe it may well be. That's why this language is used in this passage of Revelation chapter 20. Here's a triumph. Here's a victory. 
of these faithful Christians who had laid their life alive and been martyred during a period of time. They have no fear of the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, in just a moment, is the final eternal destruction. Right then you come to verses 7 through 10. Now we find that Satan is loose and cast into the lake of fire. Now we know he was going to be loose, but back up in verse 3, it says he'd be cast in the abyss, he would be loose for a little time. Alright, a little time. So we know it's sort of quantified back in verse 3. I think if you look at this, in my mind what I see, it's almost like there's supposed to be a big fight, right? A big heavyweight bout. Here they come out from the corners. They walk in the middle of the ring, boom, one punch and it's done. That's only what I see here in this passage. As though God is presenting, it looks very ominous, right? Uh, Satan is allied, Gog and Magog, they surround the faithful. It says they encompass the camp of God's people. It says, oh, well, it looks hopeless. How can we possibly survive? Then all of a sudden, back to chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 tells us what? God is in control. Jeremiah 18 tells us what? About the nations. God is in control. Romans chapter 13 tells us the powers that be, God is in control, right? The scriptures are replete with passages that show us that God is in control. Now, well, God and Magog, this must be Armageddon. Well, do not let this equate that because there's no way they can do that. Armageddon was back in what chapter? Chapter 16. Dealing specifically with the beast and false prophet. Sunday morning, that links us back to the Roman Empire. Do not allow them to make that point. That's where they're going to go right here. Agog and Magog, we go back to Ezekiel 38, 39, mentioned there. Hog is there presented as a prince of Magog. Uh, does, in the, and back in, does anywhere in Ezekiel 38, 39 tell us what nations these are? Does it say it's Assyria? Does it say it's Babylon? Does it say it's Egypt? No. Ezekiel uses Gog and Magog as those as representative of all the enemies of Israel. I believe at that point in time, now, Ezekiel is a, is a restoration prophet. Looking forward to Israel being restored. Any look at Ezekiel 38-39 and see a messianic fulfillment of that. And it may well be there. A little bit tough. Ezekiel's a difficult book. Especially chapter 38, verse 16. The thing to be symbolic of the enemies of saints at the present time, because that's how it's used by Ezekiel back in chapter 38-39. Here, simply using this symbolic language Gog and Magog as the enemies of the faithful servants of God. At a moment in time, it looks like they're encompassing, surrounding God's people, all hope is lost. Satan is cast away the fire. And I said earlier, until you get the ringleader, there's still fear. All have been judged. All of the enemies of God's people sent in the book of Revelation have been judged except for Satan. That's reserved for Revelation chapter 20. Here's the ultimate assurance of victory. Rome is gone, the emperors are gone. Here's the assurance that Satan is also going to be judged. It presented as being in the abyss, as being restrained. Now we see the ultimate victory over Satan. Cast into the lake of fire. We see in chapter 20, verse 14, the said, which is the second death. This second death, we saw earlier in the, in the, in the chapter, these 1,000 have no fear of the second death. Well, they've already been redeemed. That's the message of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. All right, what time is it here? Uh, great clarifications. Something I may have missed. Anybody? I want to get a great opportunity. Here you go. Look in chapter 19, 
Belmar McGinn, you see all these old army fights with the sword coming out of his mouth. Literal, you have to be funny, you only see. Right, good point. Other comments? Time period, there's really only other time you have, the time period. Yeah. Great. Uh, I was just grabbing my face. I was just thinking about that. In the three and a half years. Revelation always depicts a, a, a fine period of time. We'll go, we may take a look at that Sunday morning. We'll have a couple minutes. Go back to the book of Daniel. You find the same, same time, time, half time, book of Daniel. And in chapter 7, you find a, spe- a specific reference to the saints, which I think leads us very clearly uh, back to the book of Revelation again as a secondary passage. Uh, all right? Sunday morning, we're going to look at the implications. You've, you've seen, you've seen uh, the list we looked at last Sunday morning. You've got a committed to memory. Uh, so, again, be thinking about what are some passages that just seem to be contrary to some of the implications if you take that approach. Think about Daniel 2. Uh, think about this diagram between now and Sunday. Uh, look back at Isaiah 2, Joel 2, Daniel 2, Hosea 2. All points forward to what to Acts chapter 2. What happened to Acts chapter 2? Day of Pentecost, right? We believe what was established the day of Pentecost? Church. Church and King kingdom. kingdom. Right, Pete. That's what we're looking for. Which are, we understand it's synonymous. All these chapters look forward. Here's something that says the kingdom is coming. Acts 2. Peter said clearly from Joel 2, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, quoting Joel 2. The interesting is, what pertinence we see out here? Pertinence. All right, it's tomorrow. It's going to happen. I come to Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, and Hebrews 2. Well, no passages to talk about the church. <clears throat> now you're looking at past tense. Uh, it's just a powerful graphic to me. I saw that many, many years ago. The first time I saw something similar to this is in Foley Wallace's book, God's Prophetic Word. Always got my attention. I said, wow, that's an easy way to look at it. Now, is this divine or all twos? No, it's not divine. It just so happens in my people mind. They say, hey, that's an easy way to just sort of keep track of the fact now, when I look at any prophecy, it points forward, but after Acts 2, it always looks back, every time. Not find a verse after Acts 2 that's looking forward, always looking back. Alright, very good. We'll pick up here Sunday morning.